Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. There was a global news story earlier in the week. Former USASC professor predicts new oil and gas policy will divide Canada. And Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe agrees and posted uh, the global news story to his Twitter account. The professor is Ken Coates, who will be joining us tomorrow. But I also have this question. Are Canada's premiers collectively and or for their own reasons turning against Justin Trudeau and his government's policies? You'll remember that just a few weeks ago, all four Atlantic Canada premiers sent a letter of concern and protest to the prime minister about the carbon tax imposition. Oh, yeah. Carbon tax is going to be part of the discussion later on today as well. We've got all the bases covered. We're joined by Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan. Premier, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing quite well, Roy. How are you making out this I'm, week? I'm well. Thank you very much. Thank you for asking. Well, uh, let me start with the, the global news story. And I will quote, Federal Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo is set to publish policy guidelines that will dictate the circumstances for the flow of future federal investment to Canadian oil and gas firms. The policy will be similar to one the government announced last year that ended most of Canada's public financing for international fossil fuel projects. I can't imagine what that's doing to your blood pressure, Premier. Yeah, well, that's the intent of uh, Minister Gubo. Um, we'll see if he's able uh, to actually deliver on that intent, as we know. Uh, electricity generation, um, the development of our natural resources, whether it be fertilizer, fuel, uh, oil, um, mine, other mine products. It's under it's very, very explicitly in the Constitution under the purview and the jurisdiction of the provinces. And so the federal government is uh, looking at or attempting uh, to lean uh, far out of their jurisdiction, far more than they uh, have in, in months and years gone by. And so that may be Minister Gavo's intent, but I'm, I'm not sure he's going to be able to, to change the Constitution to have uh, his intent actually come to realization here in the province. That notwithstanding, uh, what provinces, what industries are doing uh, to actually achieve the, the goal that I, that I think is mutual. And the, 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 the challenge or the disagreement comes, you know, what are the timelines on how we're going to actually achieve that goal? What's an, what's an affordable timeline? to ensure that we can preserve our, our energy security and ultimately our food security in, in Canada and North America and for our allied nations around the world. Food security has become another issue just in the last week with Russia abrogating the, the deal or the agreement to allow Ukrainian um, grain and their own grain to move to the world. Now they're shutting it down. And that could be a real disaster for the already very hungry millions and millions of people globally who will be looking for Canadian grain. It, it should be very alarming for, for everyone in the world. Um, the fact of the matter is is that we need globally to feed everyone. We do need that, that food to be uh, in, in circulation and being delivered uh, around the world, like we need food from, you know, from our province and our nation and our continent to also be made available to, to people around the world. So this is very concerning, and there's there's two ways that this will, uh, you know, uh, be, be identified in the months ahead. One is people ultimately aren't going to get enough food in some areas of the world. And unfortunately, 
That's going to be in some of the poorer areas of the world. Uh, how it'll manifest itself in Canada and North America is with higher food prices and in further uh, inflation, inflationary pressures that we are going to see as families at the grocery stores. And we're, we're seeing two things that are driving uh, what essentially over the last eight or nine years has been a 30% increase in, in food prices at the grocery store in Canada. Um, what's driving that is supply chain issues like we have seen during the pandemic, like we're seeing during this Russian invasion of Ukraine, and most notably uh, the announcement of uh, shutting down of the, the, the some of the port access into the Black Sea area. Um, secondarily are the policies that are coming forward domestically, the, the policies that are essentially no carrot, all stick, uh, that are adding cost to not only uh, food, um, uh, transporting our food to, to where the people are in North America and around the world, but, but ultimately adding to the cost of production uh, for our our food as well and so energy security is is first uh, and 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 you know we see energy security concerns in europe um, but food security ultimately is where uh, these policies and this global unrest in our supply chains uh, is is going to going to manifest itself and we're going to see that in inflationary pressures higher food costs higher energy costs higher costs uh, for for us to have the standard of living that we uh, quite frankly have enjoyed for generations uh, Premier, you uh, you tweeted after Mr. Gilbo's announcement. You tweeted this: "If it wasn't clear before, it is now. The Trudeau government doesn't want to just reduce emissions in our energy sector; they want to completely shut down our energy sector." And uh, Professor Coates noted that um, Canada has a very peculiar approach to this. Uh, this approach has not been followed by other oil-producing countries, including places like Norway. It's incredibly environmentally sensitive, Norway, but it's actually pushing back very strongly against the Trudeau-esque approach to dampening down oil production. So your sense is, your belief is the Trudeau government just wants to shut down the energy sector and is focusing on your province and Alberta. Yes? Certainly they certainly they are. And if they, if they think other areas of the world are are actively closing down their their energy producing sectors thereby foregoing their their own national energy security uh, desires wants and needs they're fooling themselves and they're not they're they're listening to people as opposed to watching what other countries are actually doing including the united states uh, as a matter of fact we've heard uh, ambassador cohen openly say that they are going to continue to develop uh, their energy industry uh, in the usa alongside uh, addressing uh, the climate, the climate concerns, and the the emissions uh, in in that industry and other industries, and so no other nation is doing uh, or attempting to do what Canada is going to attempt to do here. Or Minister Gabo is going to attempt to do again. He's swimming outside his lane. Uh, he's swimming in in the provincial jurisdiction as per the constitution. But I would say is the very document that has held this country together for uh, over a century. Um, and we'll see. I, if you swim, what should be concerning for Canadians is uh, Minister Gabo has openly said that he is looking at crafting this policy in a very a specific way to circumvent the Constitution. He knows it's provincial jurisdiction to develop our natural resources. He knows it's provincial jurisdiction for provinces to uh, to produce their their electricity and provide it in an affordable manner and a sustainable manner to their citizens. Um, but he has openly said and mused about that they are legally looking at how they can circumvent the Constitution, the very spirit uh, and the wording of the Constitution, uh, to get their their ideological uh, desires in uh, essentially 
um, you know, attempting to close, to shutter an industry that has provided the Western world with the, the way of life that we have enjoyed in energy security. Um, and again, not discounting in any way uh, that the industry that is operating in across Canada and around the world understands uh, where we need to get to. But again, it's not at a cost of sacrificing our, our affordability, our energy security in the interim, and ultimately uh, sacrificing the reliability of, of the energy and electricity that we have access to. And so uh, a little bit of a, of a, of a fool's game uh, that the, the federal government is, is participating in. And I, I would think it would be disappointing for, for all Canadians to know that they are uh, you know, actively looking at ways to circumvent uh, the very spirit of the Constitution that we that has been at the very fabric of the success of this country for well, since we've become a country. In an interview, just quoting the news story, in an interview from Brussels Friday, Gilbo said tax credits or federal aid that helps companies lower their emissions will continue, including for fossil fuel companies. The new tax credit for carbon tap- capture and storage systems is not included. There you go, Premier. <laughs> You're trying yeah. all you can, and it's just not good enough. What what can you do about it? Well, many of the the, the funds that the federal government have actually uh, do not work uh, in many cases. We we have the only operating uh, post combustion carbon capture and storage facility uh, on one of our coal fired plants here in Saskatchewan. A testament to uh, efforts and initiatives that have been put forward uh, in Western Canada. But the 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 carbon is actually used in enhanced oil recovery, which excludes you from any of the the federal carbon capture uh, funding. The futures fund that they've put forward uh, doesn't work uh, for virtually any province across the province. And so those are those are somewhat uh, unattainable programs, much like the the policy that. Uh, Minister Gabot wants to, to 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 move move forward on um, your your selection of Tom Petty music isn't isn't lost on me. L- listen, at the end of the day, um, everything that I've said with respect to the federal government um, weighing outside of the the boundaries of of what the constitution ultimately allows them, weighing into areas of provincial jurisdiction. At the end of the day, one would hope that some common sense would prevail. Probably not with Minister Gabot, but maybe with Minister LeBlanc or Freeland, or possibly even a Minister Wilkinson, where you, you could actually go through what is achievable, understanding that we have, uh, you know, very the same or a similar goal in 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 our both of our minds is to you know talk about the timeline and talk about how we actually are going to achieve that in in Nova Scotia, where they they also have uh, fossil fuels uh, um, powering their their electric electricity grid in in New Brunswick, where they have a mix of, of, I believe, some hydro, some fossil fuels, some coal-fired power, and, and some nuclear power. You know, how is how is New Brunswick going to achieve these goals, and when, in an affordable, reliable time frame, and then in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, uh, Alberta as well. And so one would hope that common sense would uh, would come forward. I don't know if it will with this environment minister, but maybe maybe a couple of others will, will step into that space. Let me run this uh, quote by you. And this is from uh, Professor Ken Coates. The country can't stand too much more of this. The potential animosity between East and West is huge. We do not see central Canadian politicians defending the oil and gas industry. There's an East-West rivalry here that could become very intense. No, I, I would say that is a, that is a true quote um, that um, Ken Coates has made. Um, however, we are seeing other provinces that have... Uh, similar concerns in the federal government venturing out of their area of jurisdiction, whatever that might be, some language and 
Quebec, for example. Um, some of the, the housing initiatives that are being put forward in Ontario, some of the mining initiatives in Ontario. And so there is a, a mutual concern sometimes um, rooted in, in for different reasons. Uh, and again, I would say herein lies the opportunity for the federal government, and I certainly hope as a Canadian they don't let, allow it to, to pass them by, uh, to sit down and have those conversations about how we're all going to arrive um, arrive at, uh, you know, our destination, which is, you know, removing emissions from, from the, the atmosphere, but capitalizing on uh, attracting that investment and creating those jobs in our respective jurisdictions as well. And uh, the, the, the other provinces, um, and this is a topic of conversation among provinces, some of the challenges that we're having on with the federal government of swimming outside of their lane as per the Constitution. I, there is, you know, active discussion about, you know, how can we actually address uh, this the concern with the federal government, whatever the topic might be, because it does not bode well, uh, not only for an east-west division uh, in our nation, but a, but a, a federal-provincial division in our nation, and ultimately uh, does not bode well for us to have any hope of coming together in, as, as Canadians and supporting ultimately what we do, which is different from coast to coast to coast. Um, but I would say that we're, we're equally successful um, when allowed uh, some some opportunity uh, to to develop the the resources that we have. It may, those may be in manufacturing. Those may be in in, in developing our natural resources. Those may be uh, in, in in agriculture. Um, but when the the federal government uh, does not allow uh, Canadians uh, in their respective jurisdictions to ultimately achieve what uh, they can, um, that is the division that I see building. And it's not just in Western Canada, but it's in other areas of Canada as well. So, Premier, did you just answer what was going to be my next question, which was, are Canada's premiers collectively and or for their own reasons beginning to turn against Mr. Trudeau and his government's policies? I would say there's a collective concern uh, with uh, a number of different policies across the nation. Let me be an area like Saskatchewan might have a concern with a uh, quite a few more than, than some other areas, but I would say all areas are concerned uh, with the, the, the policy development that the federal government is coming forward and how it's ultimately having an impact or uh, outright infringing in areas of, uh, of provincial jurisdiction. In, in Saskatchewan, we, we are taking a number of measures, whether it be on uh, you know, in the in the space of introducing our Firearms Act, we have the Saskatchewan First Act, a number of offensive and, and defensive measures actually to protect uh, our ability uh, to uh, to develop the the resources that are that are creating jobs here to do so in a sustainable way. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we've we've shown um, more than once that we're more than willing to take the federal government, unfortunately, uh, to to the courts uh, okay. as well. And we'll we'll continue to look at adjust those options into the future and may look at them alongside um, other provinces or maybe many other provinces. Do you know what I will never forget? When it comes to the government and China and China's oppression and brutality toward minorities. And I'm sure you'll remember this as well. When the Parliament of Canada voted on a motion to declare China to be genocidal toward the Uyghur community, minority community, in China. It was a unanimous vote, yes. It's genocide. However, footnote, important one. Mr. Trudeau and his entire cabinet walked out before the vote took place. Why? Let's have a special raconteur on that. Oh, I'm sorry, rapporteur. This is very, very serious, and it's deeply concerning. 
We're about to speak with Anna Clark. She is one of eight former residents of Hong Kong and human rights activists with a million-dollar bounty on her for her opposition to the manner of Beijing's takeover of Hong Kong and shutting down, shutting down any dissent, people disappearing. Imagine waking up with a million-dollar bounty on your head every day. Benedict Rogers is a human rights activist specializing in Asian policy and geopolitics. Mr. Rogers is the co-founder and CEO of Hong Kong Watch, deputy chair of the UK Conservative Party Human Rights Commission. He's a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal. He's testified in the UK Parliament, the European Parliament, and before the US Congress. And his book, published by Optimum, is The China Nexus, 30 Years in and Around the Communist Party's Tyranny. Anna, thank you for joining us. How are you? Thank you. Um, of course, I'm still trying to take in, you know, having a one million bounty on my head, but overall, I'm doing well, and that's really, I think, the worst answer that CCP would like to hear. Yeah. Ben, thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, okay, so your book is The China Nexus. Uh, how bad is it? How, ba- how, ba- how badly is China dealing with human rights issues? How, how out of step with the rest of the world or with, with human, uh, human accepted behavior are they? Well, firstly, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Uh, and the answer is that in the last um, decade or so under Xi Jinping's regime, China's human rights uh, crisis, which was already bad, I mean, it's been bad for decades under the Communist Party, but it, it, it really sank to new lows with, as you mentioned, the genocide of the Uyghurs, uh, an intensification of the atrocities in Tibet, uh, forced organ harvesting, uh, the worst persecution of Christians since the Cultural Revolution, uh, crackdown on dissent and, and lawyers and civil society. And on top of that, as Anna uh, knows better than any of us, uh, the dismantling of Hong Kong's uh, freedoms and the turning of what was once one of Asia's most open cities into one of its most repressive police states in, in complete violation of a, an international treaty, the Sino-British Joint Declaration over Hong Kong. Yeah, 1997. Uh, Anna, you grew up as a child in Hong Kong while it was still essentially separate from China, and then you saw the developments which took away the freedoms and took away people who challenged Hong Kong. Uh, the uh, the Beijing uh, office. I've been, I've been calling Hong Kong police now and their government the the branch office of uh, Beijing. Yeah. What was yeah. it like? What what was it like as this was developing, as Beijing was starting to move in and violate the human rights of everyone in in Hong Kong? Well, I think a lot of people would remember Hong Kong as this hustling and bustling international finance city, right? And that was the Hong Kong I grew up in. That was the Hong Kong that had a certain level of freedoms and, you know, expression. Um, even though, you know, we were actually promised a universal referendum, but it was never actually implemented and respected. And that's why Hong Kongers have been fighting for that basic human rights um, and also the freedoms that we should serve. But I think as, you know, Beijing continues and uh, to crack down on Hong Kong's basic human rights, is really a sign 
to the international world and to international systems that Beijing is not a credible international player, and they're actually willing to just walk out of any any deal they have signed on to. And you can see now with Hong Kong's um, economy and Hong Kong's offices around the world, uh, for instance, the Hong Kong Economic and Trade Offices, um, Hong, the Hong Kong government is really using these, uh, these systems and these opportunities to serve as Beijing's proxies. They're essentially Beijing's puppets to really advance Xi Jinping's uh, profits and benefits. And that is something the world should see. And I think Hong Kong is you know, the perfect textbook example of it of the uh, authoritarian expansion the Beijing government has been waging around the world is really not only about those who are living in China and Hong Kong, you know, in places that have more direct governance from Xi Jinping anymore. It's about the entire world. It's about the international system and international society. Really. And that's why they are not afraid to do the transnational repression. They're not afraid to, you know, put a bounty on the eight of us who are essentially living overseas and not really in Hong Kong anymore. What were you doing that upset Beijing so much? Um, that's actually a very good question. Basically, I have been working here at the Hong Kong Democracy Council, where I oversee a lot of policy advocacy on the Capitol Hill. So actually, right before the bounty, um, we started this campaign called the Bar John Lee Campaign. What it does is to ask the U.S. government to not let John Lee, Hong Kong's uh, executive director, uh, Hong Kong's chief executive, who may come to the U.S. for the APEC meeting this November. But mind you, he was actually sanctioned by the U.S. government in 2020. But he has been trying to push that line and trying to make sure that he can enter to the U.S. So what I have been doing is basically to counter the Hong Kong government's attempt um, to reach their international audience and to regain some sort of diplomatic engagement with other foreign governments. And that is considered um, very dangerous by the Hong Kong government. And honestly, I'm just speaking up, you know, as any human being would. So I think ultimately the bounty is not only about me. They're upset about all the Hong Kongers who are still speaking their truth. They're upset about every freedom fighters who are just talking about the real story of Hong Kong, a story of human rights abuses. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I, I'm still dealing, trying to deal with bounties on people in 2023 by a national government. Ben, um, U.S. Congressman Chris Smith, reviewing your book, uh, wrote the China Nexus is a robust wake-up call to action. It covers the author's own personal experiences in and around China and Hong Kong for over 30 years and tells the stories of dozens of Uyghurs, Tibetans, Hong Kongers, and Chinese activists whom he has interviewed. Share something uh, with us about the people you've talked to and what they're experiencing, what they're going through now. You're not allowed back into Hong Kong, but what, what, what can you tell us uh, that just really will illustrate what this is all about? Well, that's right. I mean, I first went to China um, when I was 18 years old in 1992, which was only three years after the Tiananmen Square massacre, which, of course, was uh, an absolutely appalling tragedy that we uh, continue to mark uh, quite rightly on, on, Jan on June the 4th uh, every year. Um, but at that time, there was a sense in 1992 of 
despite the Tiananmen tragedy, uh, China beginning to open up um, in a limited way. Of course, the Communist Party was still repressive, but there was, uh, from then until the, the early 2000s, some degree of space for civil society, for lawyers, for dissidents, for, for religious practitioners. And, and I witnessed that for myself. Um, and I was, and until uh, a decade or so ago, I was reasonably optimistic that Despite the repression, China was beginning to move in a better direction. And then along came Xi Jinping, and he really reversed uh, all of that and, and cracked down uh, on everything. Um, and the people that I've interviewed, whose stories I tell in the book, are uh, from uh, not only the Uyghurs, Tibetans, and Hong Konger communities, but also Chinese dissidents, uh, Chinese uh, lawyers and uh, activists, um, uh, tells a story of um, real re repression. Um, and, and what's happened in the last decade is the Chinese Communist Party has become, it, it has intensified its repression at home in China, um, but also intensified its aggression abroad. And we see that in the threats to Taiwan, but we also see it in its insidious uh, threats to our freedoms, whether it's in Canada or the United Kingdom, where I'm based, or, or other Western democracies. Um, just a week or so ago, the British Parliament's uh, Intelligence Committee published a report uh, that, uh, that really revealed the extent of uh, China's threats to, uh, to, to our freedoms and its infiltration of our economic sectors. And on a very, very small way, scale, and this is nothing by comparison with what Anna and uh, the other uh, activists who've had arrest warrants and bounties uh, face, but in a very small way, even I myself, as a British citizen, have in a suburb of London uh, received numerous anonymous uh, threatening letters uh, at my home. My neighbours have received such letters. Even my mother, who lives in the, the English countryside, has received letters telling her to tell her son to shut up. And uh, thankfully, my mother is very supportive of what I do. And she takes the view that she gave up many years ago <laughs> telling me to shut up. But these are the kind of things that the Chinese Communist Party is doing. And in my view, it is first, firstly a real threat to our freedoms, but it's also an illustration of just how actually fragile this regime is, that it, it goes to the extent of putting a bounty on the heads of people like Anna, yeah. it goes to the extent of sending anonymous letters to me and my mother. Um, and to me, that it does not speak of a confident regime. No, it speaks no. of a regime that is very sensitive well, to any form of criticism. Anna, what's your status in the United States right now? Um, I'm currently seeking for asylum, and I've been waiting for my application to go through for around a year, but I still haven't really heard anything. So could, could anybody just collect this bounty on you? If I mean, are you in danger of being physically assaulted and removed from the United States? Could that happen? Do you think China, do you think that Beijing would, would, would attempt such a thing? Um, I think speaking from, you know, history, of course, we have seen how dictatorship regimes would try to, you know, just snap people out from the streets and bring them back, you know, all the way to um, their own countries and decide to put, in, put them in jail. And of course, that is a possibility, um, realistically speaking. But at the same time, you know, what I'm the most worried about actually is not so much um, the state agents from Beijing, but more um, supporters and patriots who are extremely supportive and obedient to Xi Jinping. I think they are the ones who would have a sort of mob mentality 
in them and would actually, you know, assault uh, some of us. And that actually has happened to many anonymous protesters over the past years. They have been assaulted on the, uh, on the soil of the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, you know, everywhere around the world that happens. So I really want to alert foreign government to provide protection to Hong Kongers, especially those who are kind of anonymous and who don't really have, you know, the platform or resources that I am so fortunate to receive. Um, but of course, I'm still worried because it's a very, you know, present uh, danger. But I'm glad that I've made uh, contact uh, with uh, relevant officials here in the U.S. So if there's a need, uh, I can still get some sort of protection um, from the authorities. What a way to live. Um, the Hong Kong Democracy Council is uh, an Quark's organization. Um, ben Rogers, we have the situation with the two Michaels who were held in China for more than two years. And I'm sure terrible circumstance. And we were completely, uh, we couldn't do anything. We, we were sort of passive. I don't know how many options we had, but we appeared passive. What, what, do, you, what do you make of uh, Hong Kong's or China's um, attempts to infiltrate another country's national affairs, as in this country, and, and, our, and our elections and, and just our internal matters. Is it just routine for them? Well, it, it, is, their, it is becoming their modus operandi, and, and it is really the characteristics of, as you put it earlier, a, a Mexican drug cartel or, as I would say, a, a mafioso gang, not a, a government of a major world power. Um, and this putting bounties on people's head is a, is a new escalation. And as Anna says, I, I share her concern that it's not so much that our governments are likely to extradite uh, the eight individuals. I'm, I'm pretty sure they won't, and I certainly hope they won't. But I think it does raise the stakes in terms of um, the, the, the likelihood of pro-Beijing activists um, becoming increasingly violent towards not only the eight, but, but other Hong Kong activists. Uh, unless our governments really step up and um, uh, and 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 respond to, to this threat very seriously, yeah. Well, I, uh, I I'm, I'm I'm worried about you, Anna. Uh, I don't know what what it would supposed to be like, and we only have a few seconds left. But what's it like to get up in the morning knowing that you have this bounty on you? Yeah, um, honestly, I was shocked for a moment because I thought, you know, I've been doing so innocent things. You know, basically, I've just been speaking yeah. words that are not even harmless. Yeah. Um, and I get a bounty in return. But of course, um, you know, after some moments, I quickly realized that is the kind of, exactly the kind of regime the Hong Kong government and the Chinese government are. And that is exactly the evils that we have been fighting. Okay. That's why we put out a new report, you know, very quickly after the, the bounty. Okay. Show the kind of foreign influence they have been conducting overseas. I, uh, I have to jump. I have to jump. I have to jump in here, but I hope you will both come back. I'd like to continue this conversation. Anna Kwok, uh, okay. Benedict uh, Rogers. I hope you both come back. Thank you for the time today. Thank, Thank you. you so much. A few days ago, I was uh, just checking out Twitter, and I came across a post by Shane Wenzel, a home builder in Calgary, shaneholmes.com. And uh, Mr. Wenzel posted to Twitter that 10 confirmed home buyers 
walked away from their home purchases, walked away from their dreams when the interest rate hit 5%. And we know this sort of thing is going on. We know that people are finding themselves backed into a corner. And I'm going to be taking phone calls after I speak with Shane Munson. I'll be taking phone calls from you across Canada about what is happening in your life because of this 5% interest rate. Walking away from your home, afraid you'll lose your home. If you're renting, are you afraid you'll lose your, your home in that sense as well? Shane Wenzel joins us uh, on The Roy Green Show. Shane, thank you very much. That was quite a, that was a, that was a very powerful, powerful post. Well, thanks for having me, Roy. And <laughs> I'm glad it caught your attention because I believe it's an issue that uh, that's facing a number of Canadians now. Well, please explain to us. I was going to read it. But uh, I, I'd rather that you explain to us what you wrote and, and what, in fact, happened. Well, what happened was that uh, last month we had 10 customers who couldn't, uh, could no longer qualify to, uh, to occupy their home, meaning that the, uh, the interest rate had climbed so high in the, uh, in the 12 months it took to get them in that, uh, that they could no longer move in. They could no longer afford to. They didn't have any other sources of income to go to to uh, to close the gap. So they effectively had to walk away from their dream. And they had qualified, as I understand it, when the interest rate was between 2 and 2.5%. Yes. So you're building the homes, and you know the pressure they're under, and it's putting you under pressure. So I'm sure that you tried to complete the homes as quickly as you could, and it still didn't work out. Unfortunately, it didn't, you know, and that uh, that is the the reality that we're faced with nowadays. We uh, we have a number of retiring retiring trades, rather, you know, fewer young people coming into the trades. We uh, we are still dealing with some supply chain issues out there. So the average build time, uh, you know, and I can only speak for the uh, for the Calgary region has has extended, you know, sixty to ninety days in cases. So when I say twelve months. From the time they purchase the home to the time they move in, it's it's certainly twelve months before that happens. You know, we're, we're talking about people who who had to walk away from their dream. <laughs> people who saved, no doubt, for a long period of time in order to or, or, or manage the finances in a way that they were able to 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 purchase a home and have you build it for them. And you have empathy for them, of course, don't you? I know I saw that in the, I saw that in your responses on Twitter. I mean, I can't imagine you're so close to that goal and uh, all of a sudden it's ripped away from you. Yeah. So what happens to you now in those homes? Well, I mean, what we'll do is we'll, uh, we obviously will take them back and uh, resell them and we'll refund their deposits. We're not going not gonna to add to their pain. And hopefully down the line that they can save a little bit more and we can, uh, we can start all over for them. Yeah. That's very, very generous of you. Mm-hmm. Um other home builders, associated businesses and trades, are you aware of any that are affected just as badly? And I'll ask you about the federal government's policies in a moment. But are you are you are you aware of others that are being affected by this uh, by this? Uh, this is a silly question, but are you? Uh, oh yeah, well this is uh, this is starting to happen a little bit more now with uh, with rates jumping the way that they have, and uh, you know it's uh, it. it, it, it it could turn into a bit of a problem now. I mean, we're we're, we're fortunate enough. We're uh, we're sitting in the province of Alberta, where you know we seem to be the uh, the destination for uh, for a lot of people to move to. But uh, you, know, you still 
Joe, you don't like to see people's dreams dashed at uh, no. the last minute. No, it's terrible. Now, you, uh, you added on your post these words. You can thank Trudeau and his government, their out-of-control spending policies, and the 10th consecutive interest rate for adding to the housing crisis. So I'll ask you to expand on that. Well, it's, it's 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 a good example of too much too quick, Roy. Uh, you know, I mean, you have a government that's uh, that has sat back for the last two years, asking uh, asking people to get out there and spend, and and reminding them that you know interest rates are at all time lows, and then now they're dealing with this. So I get a little bit frustrated when the messages are coming out that way, and we seem to be doing the exact opposite. And on top of that. Uh, you know, you're adding on a tremendous amount of immigration into the country, and, and not that I'm against it. I'm against too much all at once because no one's prepared for this. You know, we're uh, we're dealing with a housing crisis, and we have been for a number of years. We've been short, uh, you know, well over a million houses in this country, and now we're uh, we're going to be short probably double that in no time. You know, that's really an incredible number to hear that. I mean, hear you say it. Mm-hmm. We've been short a million houses. Yes. In a population of 38 million or 40 million, which is cost 40. Uh, that is a, that's, that's a really incredible statement. And then to say, and we're, we're, double, we're probably double there now, and how do we catch up? <laughs> I mean, how do we catch up? With a great deal of difficulty. Like I said, you, you, you have a retiring trade base. And fewer younger people, uh, you know, coming into the trades because fewer of them see it as a career. They're they're focused on other things, and uh, you know, I mean, the only other way you can really uh, uh, really tackle that issue is, you know, with uh, through immigration, where you bring in that skilled uh, trade set. Do you fear that there will be more clients of yours, more customers, signed on the dotted line to have their dream home built? who will have to come to you and say, sorry, can't do it. Uh, I'm concerned about that every month. And like I said, you know, it's, uh, we're in a great province. Things are moving along well now, but, uh, you know, certainly, I mean, things could shift very easily and you're, you're left holding the, uh, the bag, so to speak. So what would you advise Mr. Mr. Trudeau and his government to do? Well, I think you got to, you know, for one, you got to slow down immigration right now. Uh, when you look at it, uh, you, you know, we're, we're, if you bring in a million people, I mean, we can't house a million people. If you can't get uh, people out of their house, or the current Canadians out of their houses and uh, uh, and they, out of their rental, rather, uh, into a new home, that's creating a backwards crisis in the rental side of things, too. And that's why you see rental rates going up. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you've got to ease off on a lot of things. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I understand why the government is uh, is increasing rates. Uh, you know, they think that that is a way of slowing down the economy and, uh, and getting inflation back in line. But it almost has an opposite effect. What we find in the housing is that it, it, it puts a panic into people that they've got to get into the housing market before things go out of sight. Because they're watching prices go up every day, and they're watching interest rates go up every day. So it does create a bit of a panic. This new story that I want to get into, and this is very interesting, and it has to do with Canada's provinces, all of them now permitting pharmacists to prescribe medication for relatively minor health issues. Is this a positive step? 
What are the pitfalls? And what is the response of Canada's family physicians? Dr. Chris Milburn is a family physician in uh, Sydney, Nova Scotia. He joins us. Dr. Milburn, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. I always like to ask doctors how they are. It's just a thing of mine. Because we run in and complain to you about how we're feeling. And then so we, I always like to ask doctors how they're doing. What do you think led to pharmacists having the right to prescribe medications for more minor health conditions? And the, there are different models in different provinces. Do you think it was the the lack of family doctors? Was it something else? Um, for sure. What, what's happened, as I see it, as a big picture, is for 50 years now, the government has had a complete stranglehold on running medicine in Canada. We have the most socialist medical system other than probably North Korea and Cuba. The Canada Health Act actually makes it illegal for people to provide private service or work outside of the system. So the government has engineered it into the ground. If anybody wants to know why you don't have a family doctor anymore, it's because the, the pay rates are now so low that it's just not worth people doing office practice. So because they've engineered the shortage of uh, family doctors, there was a cry, understandably, from the public to say we need care somewhere. And so now we have nurse practitioners, and we have physician assistants, and now pharmacists who can kind of come in on the edges of uh, what a family doctor used to do and chip away at the sort of the traditional family doc role. Doesn't that also chip away at, uh, additionally chip away at the, at the income of family doctors? Well, it does. So people should, should make no mistake. We have, we have great job security. We'll never be bored. It's not like we won't have enough work. But the, the problem is the pay rates, and in the government's great wisdom, it's set pay rates for a typical family doc visit anywhere from around like $35 or so in Nova Scotia to I think the best paying provinces are probably a little over $50, which uh, people have to keep in mind out of that, a, government, uh, sorry, a, a doctor has to pay for heat, light, secretary, licensing, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it doesn't work out to be much. And that visit fee is set assuming an average visit complexity. So what, what happens, it sounds great. When the government says it sounds great, oh, we're going to take these menial things like UTIs and heartburn and just let the pharmacist deal with them, well, that's great, but that increases the average visit complexity. We end up, as family doctors, we end up with, you know, sick 83-year-old people who have a list of eight complaints that are on 14 medications that take us a half an hour to sort out and then leave us with extra paperwork after that. And so suddenly that, that average complexity is just too high and we're we're just not making any money and that's why family doctors are, are voting with their feet and they don't work in offices anymore yeah I've, I've heard that uh, quite a bit actually um, so I was thinking about one particular um, health issue might present itself to a pharmacist UTIs urinary tract infection which could be simple to address with an antibiotic but might also be indicative of a more serious health condition like I don't know STDs Without proper screening and testing prior to an antibiotic being prescribed by a pharmacist, a serious health issue may be missed or delayed or temporarily dealt with and not treated properly. Is that a legitimate concern? Yeah, I think I think that's legitimate. There's a number of different issues with with allowing pharmacists to start to prescribe. But one of them is pharmacists are, you know, they have uh, there's kind of a one trick pony. They're they're really, really good about sorting out medications, much smarter than I am as a doc. They, they know all the details of which medications interact with which ones, what time of day you take them with food, without food, all this stuff. But they're not treated in what we call differential diagnosis. So somebody comes in and says, I think I have a UTI. Well, that could be 20 different things from a kidney stone to bladder cancer to a perforated diverticulum. Um, and pharmacists aren't really treated to think of 
medical problems in that way. They're, they're treated, think of them from the, after they're diagnosed. And, and but patients don't show up with a label on their forehead saying, I have a UTI. They show up with complaints. Yeah. So what, that's, that's problematic, firstly, because something might be missed. But uh, like I'll give you an example from a few weeks ago. I had a patient come in to me with a UTI complaint. It's very simple. And it was a UTI. TI in the end, I'm pretty confident, and that was fine. But she also just happened to say, oh, I'm a little worried about this thing on my leg. And I looked at this mole on her leg. I said, that should come off. We took it off, and it was a melanoma. And it's that sort of value-added thing. If, if she just had to be to the pharmacist for a UTI, the pharmacist is not going to be able to look at her leg, too. They're, they're not either paid or trained to do that. So it's those kind of things. Somebody's in my office for UTI, and I say, hey, you're, you're two years late on your pap smear, you're late on your mammogram, you're late on your colon cancer screening, whatever. There's, there's value added with the family doc and pharma, you know, the pharmacist visit is very limited and proscribed. It's, you know, very narrow in focus. Yeah. Dr. Milburn, in the minute we have left, did I just hear you say family doctors are voting with their feet? Absolutely. So, um, People can people can follow me. At, we, my wife and I, have a, a, a Substack. But if they go to freespeechandmedicine.com, I'm going to be putting out something soon. But if you want to know why you don't have a family doc, it's because office practice pays so poorly and is so uh, laden with paperwork that none of our new grads are doing it anymore. Firstly, hardly any medical school graduates are choosing. Uh, family medicine, that the numbers of them choosing family med have gone way down. The ones that do end up working in emergency rooms or palliative care or anything that pays a salary because many of them make twice as much as they would in an office. So there's just, there's no uh, financial incentive to do office. Okay, well, that's scary. What's, the, what's your sub stack again? Uh, people can go to freespeechinmedicine.com and check it out and they can get the link to our sub stack there. Freespeechinmedicine.com. I write slowly, eh? <laughs> I have to be able to read it later. Freespeechinmedicine.com. Yeah. Free How's your writing? How's your handwriting? Uh, no, it's okay. I don't, no, no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> it, it, it's actually legible, which okay, I don't know. Maybe that means I'm not a good doctor. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.